This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Cholly, and yes, my voice is much better. Now, it turns out there were lots of podcasts around these days who are all um, constantly congratulating themselves for being uh, terribly popular. Some of us have been around for a very long time. So if you want to try and help us up the mumbo-jumbo charts, particularly if you're listening to us on an Apple device, uh, do go to your podcast app and post us a review. Uh, that would be an enormous help. And actually, if you, do, if you put your name on there, I'll say hello to you on the podcast as well, if you like. So yeah, wherever you are listening right now, go on, go online, rate us. Uh, we've got 4.2 out of 5 currently on the uh, on the podcast appy thing. Uh, and uh, because, you know, there are new podcasts on the block, some of whom have discovered the delights of things like doing a focus group. Uh, we will have our monthly focus group on the podcast tomorrow, uh, so you can listen to that. But yeah, if you're listening to this on your app, wherever you are, uh, post us a review. Partly so I can say hello to you on the podcast, but also it helps up go up the podcast charts and tell your friends as well. Right, coming up on today's episode then, are we one year from Scottish independence? Nicola Sturgeon wants us to think so. She thinks that the referendum can happen in October next year. But as she gives her big speech at the SNP conference, we'll ask, is that really realistic? John Curtis will talk us through the polling and much else besides. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, it's time for this. The Colonists with Libby Rachie, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester on Times Radio. Yes, it's that time where we speak to our two favourite columnists on a Monday morning. Morning, Libby Purvis. Good morning. I like the job titles in our house. Paul was IT manager, but now he says he heads up the IT directorate. <laughs> Very good. Very good. And I assume there's nobody working under him. No, no absolutely good. not. Quite the right, cat, so. the cat. The cat, the cat. Uh, and morning, Rachel Sylvester. Morning, Rachel. Morning. Nice to have you with us. It's extraordinary, um, the Deems are Harvey going on the telly and announced he's chief operating officer. <laughs> What does it mean? Just made that up. And why My favourite you... one was, say, I volunteered on some sort of street committee once and they made me paving stone czar. So I had to go along and look out for broken paving stones that people might trip over. Well, that seems like a very important job. Well, extre- extremely, I, mean, yeah. I suppose to some extent, uh, what the Deems of Harvey's job is to stop Liz Truss tripping over over the next few weeks. So very similar, very similar jobs. Uh, let's talk about, then, uh, Liz Truss's charm offensive. Uh, Rachel, you and I have been doing this job long enough to know that when we get to the stage of the Prime Minister will tour the tea room. Tea room, exactly. That's really bad. That's curtains, basically. It's a total disaster when she thinks that nobody likes her, even in Parliament among her own MPs. 
Um, but I think this is the end. Combined with this um, announcement that the Treasury is going to publish the OBR forecast early, this is the end of the Downing Street Millwall strategy that nobody likes us and we don't care. They suddenly realised actually you do need to persuade your MPs to support you and you do need to persuade the markets to back your ideas. You can't just sort of go all guns blazing, ignoring what anyone thinks, head in sand, everybody hates us, that's fine. Um, so I think you can look at those two things together and see the government, Liz Truss, suddenly realising actually maybe she does need to be popular, at, at least at some level. Uh, what, how does this look from your perspective, uh, Libby? I mean, I suppose if your if your brand was strong and steely and won't be deterred, the lady's not for turning, and now the lady's turning up in the tea room. It, it, it's it, the brand has been trashed. Well, the weird thing for outsiders is is that you half deplore and half enjoy all this stuff. You know, I mean, I really deplored all the rudeness, the extraordinary number 10 briefing that said poor Michael Gove had a darkness corrupting his soul. You know, like the old Michael Howard something of the night thing. Um, uh, but it, it, it's, it just feels... It just feels like nonsense. You know, please, everybody, argue on the issues. Everybody offer evidence. Everybody offer arguments. You know, instead of the sort of the, the Nicola Sturgeon thing of, oh, I despise them, despise them all, hate them, you know, and all this something of the night stuff. You, as, a, as a citizen, you just get sick of it and say, no, let's have some actual arguments with hard evidence, with numbers, you know, with facts, with, with uh, you know, every, every kind of, of um, sort of previous experience. And instead, you just get this mudslinging and then a charm offensive and it's nonsense well, in fact um uh, the, the the thing that struck me about that I mean, it was extraordinary that briefing about michael gove but i mean all he did was he went on the television and actually came on times radio the same thing and was asked a question should uh, benefit should uh, do you like the 55p tax rate and he said no i don't think that should be the priority and lots of people agreed with him and so they u-turned it's not like he it's like he was going around dripping poison and, and publicly being incredibly rude about liz truss no, he's the politest man on the planet. He used to be a page editor on, on, the, on the Times, um, an op-ed editor, and he's the politest man you'll ever meet. Yeah. And also the problem was he was reflecting the balance of opinion on the Tory benches in the Commons and among the voters. So it wasn't that he was single-handedly standing out and sort of knifing Liz Truss in the back. It was that he was actually the sort of voice of the people on this point at least about the priorities and values as he put it are you going to cut taxes for the rich at the same time as not um, as effectively cutting benefits for the poorest that was the thing it was about the values of the government it wasn't a personal attack on Liz Truss or anything like that um, and, and so where where does this go do you think Libby how can you know, because we're trying to sort of focus on the positives. Given how bad the last month has been, surely the only way is now up for Liz Truss. If she can steady the horses a bit, calm everyone down, maybe drink a lot of tea and cake in the tea room, and what, get through to Christmas and things might start looking up? A great deal will depend on what actually happens to the economy and what actually happens to the the hostility um, uh, which a lot of people have to what they've done and also a lot will depend on whether the Labour Party is sufficiently uh, sort of sufficiently sharp to pick up on things mm. and and create more disaffection and despair in the Conservative ranks. I honestly don't believe she'll be still the Prime Minister at Christmas. I truly don't believe that. I think I think she's had it. What do you think, Rachel? 
Well, I think the problem is that the, a lot of the MPs feel that it would be ridiculous to get rid of another leader so quickly. So I'm not sure that any of them will have any confidence in her by Christmas, but I'm not sure whether she'll actually have been toppled. But it, that you look at the polls and you look at the difference between the Labour conference that we all went to and then the Tory conference, it was just so astonishing and striking. The discipline, you know, the kind of grown-upness at Labour and then the squabbling, utter chaos at the Tory conference. And there's just that sort of clash between the two is now fascinating, I think. And the MPs are beginning to feel that. They're beginning to fear that their seats are, are now gone at the next election. Um, but I, I think they're at the moment they're held back by the fact that they look just ridiculous. But at some point, survival may kick in. I suppose I, th I can't remember who it was. There was somebody who wrote over the weekend at the, the, the essentially the judgment of what is more ridiculous: getting rid of her or keeping her. And that's the that's essentially in the in the in the balance. Let's focus on one of the real world parts because it's all very good sort of Westminster chat. Um, Childcare seems to be one of the new fronts that the, the government sort of opened up. They. they Again, so slightly raising expectations. Although, I have to say, every time I read a story about it, they do give a very clear impression they don't know what they're doing. Uh, last week, there was a suggestion they might loosen the ratios so that uh, childcare providers could have uh, one adult in, in charge of slightly more children. Then there was a suggestion they might rip up those rules altogether and leave it to providers to decide. And then an extraordinary story in The Times at the weekend. It's, um, uh, Liz just wants to overhaul what she calls the convoluted subsidised childcare system. She just hand money directly to families instead to spend on childcare. Um, we put to one side, uh, Rachel. That sounds a bit like handouts to me, uh, because that <laughs> exactly. was that was not allowed. But you, I know you've been looking at this a lot to the um, the Times Education Commission. Yes, and I'm really pleased that the government is taking this seriously, and they're absolutely right to focus on childcare. And I would describe it as early years education. Um, and they're right that the system is convoluted and overcomplicated. There are eight different pots of money in government. But their solutions seem, well, at best kind of ill thought through and at worst likely to be really pernicious and have a negative effect on the system. So the real, the sort of basic problem is that the amount of money that the government gives to pays for the subsidised places is lower than the cost of those places. So that's not going to make any difference. If you give that too small amount of money to the parents or to the providers, if anything, it's going to cause more instability, cause more nurseries to shut, cause more lack of places, then drive up the cost of care, mm. uh, you know, overall, if you do that. Um, and in terms of these ratios, you know, parents don't want the um, quality of care to go down. Parents don't want more children for um per carer and the nurseries there was a survey of nurseries which showed that nine in ten wouldn't implement this change if it was introduced and even if those who did only two percent would pass on any savings to parents in the countries where they do have um higher ratios the government sort of cites those countries but in fact it's slightly misleading because in in those countries, the the staff have higher qualifications, and often they're also support staff. So in fact, it's not a kind of like for like comparison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I suppose that's the thing: is you've got better qualified, better paid people, then it sort of it would sort of make sense that they could be in charge of more children. Exactly. L Libby, what's what's your your view on this? It feels like it's a real it's a real life problem which they've sort of alighted on. But once again, the sort of ideology crashing up against reality and a distinct lack of money. 
Well, absolutely. So to reduce the ratios, you know, reduce the red tape, all the rest of it is is nonsense. I mean, I have looked after great herds of two and three year olds just for a few hours at a time with my own and other people's. And the, the ratios were set just about right. But what we have now and listen to the National Day Nurseries Association, we've got a lot of two year olds who are coming into nursery sort of even less prepared than before for life because of COVID restrictions and because of not enough socialization while, while they were babies. And they're going to need a lot more support with language and with social skills, all the rest of it. This is not a time to be fiddling around with the ratios and making everything just that little bit more sort of ad hoc and poverty stricken. So I think, you know, it, it's absolutely, it, it needs resisting. It needs to be, they need to talk to some experts in the area and they need to talk to people like Rachel um, you know, and I just, I'm not sure they are. I think there's an ideology here of, oh goodness, you know, why should we throw, be throwing all this money at families? You know, basically they should all be much richer and have nannies at home anyway, uh, like Jacob Rees-Mogg does. They don't get it. I really think at the moment yeah. they just don't get it and they need to be made to. The campaign to get uh, Rachel in the House of Lords and made childcare minister starts here. Um, everyone else is to go to the House of Lords, so it's only a matter of time. Libby Burroughs and Ray Sylvester there, and of course you can read them in The Times. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. And right now, you get your first month completely free. Up next, are we really one year from Scottish independence? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. So today is the last day of the SNP's annual conference. And like every year, the word on everyone's minds independence. Nicola Sturgeon will take to the stage this afternoon for what could be the last time she'll do so before a second independence referendum. That's at least if we believe her timetable. Back in June, she stood up in the Scottish Parliament and said this. Presiding officer, I can announce that the Scottish Government is proposing that the independence referendum be held on the 19th of October 2023. These are... Thank you. Thank you. Members, these are the key elements of the referendum legislation that the Scottish Government wishes this Parliament to scrutinise and pass. So, the date has been set, October the 19th, 2023. But how realistic is that? 
what prospect is there that, that Scotland will go to the polls again? And if they do, what might happen? Well, all of that talk of a timetable to his second independence referendum has been slightly overshadowed by what Liz Truss told Laura Koonsberg on the BBC yesterday. I, I detest the Tories and everything they stand for, so it's not difficult to answer that question. Being better than the Tories is not a high bar to cross right now. I think we need to see more of a radical alternative from Labour rather than just a pale imitation. And if you're asking me, do I think either a Westminster Tory government or a Westminster Labour government is good enough for Scotland, then my answer to that question is no. Yeah, we'll discuss detesting the Tories in just a moment. But she made clear that she was confident that she could stick to her schedule for another referendum. Yes, I am confident that uh, that can happen. The Supreme Court next week will consider the question of does the Scottish Parliament have the competence to legislate for that referendum? There's little point speculating on the outcome mm -hmm. of a, a court uh, hearing. As Joanna just said, wait and see what the court says. And but you, I'm it... confident Scotland is going to become independent. So she remains confident. But as things stand, the referendum can't go ahead about the agreement of the UK government. This is what Liz Truss told ITV last week. I'm very clear that in 2014, when there was a referendum, we said it was once in a generation. I'm very clear there shouldn't be another referendum before that generation is up. So Liz Truss uh, ruling it out. So exactly what? how could Liz Truss, uh, how could Nicola Sturgeon get to a second referendum as she'd like in a year's time on the October the 19th. Let's speak to Kieran Andrews, the Scottish political editor of The Times. Morning, Kieran. Morning from sunny Aberdeen, Matt. Uh, live from the SNP conference. And Katrina Stewart, a columnist for The Herald. Morning, Katrina. Good morning. Kieran, first of all, uh, you're there live at the party conference in Aberdeen. What's the, what's the mood like there? I and mean, how, how confident are they about getting that independence referendum in a year's time? The mood is very, very subdued, actually. Speaking to a lot of delegates up here, the main thing that comes through is, is people are saying that they believe there's going to be an independence referendum, but you can tell in their eyes they don't quite believe it. Um, Nicola Sturgeon will give her keynote speech this afternoon, and then tomorrow on Wednesday, the Supreme Court in London will hear the Scottish government's arguments, the Scottish government's case, to give the Scottish Parliament the powers to hold a, an independence referendum without the need for the agreement of the UK government. We expect that decision to come in about six or eight weeks' time, and that's the key thing um, that will determine you know, whether or not a referendum will go ahead. So what the, a lot of delegates here are saying, oh, we just need to wait for the Supreme Court. Yes, there will be a referendum, that's what the First Minister says, but we need to wait for the Supreme Court. And that's been used as quite the get-out from uh, anyone who tried back into a corner here. The other brief thing I would say is that it's been pointed out to me by more than one person that if the Scottish government, the SNP, really thought there was going to be an independence referendum next year, a year from now, 12 months from this point, there would maybe be more campaign on the ground, you know, things would be building up, there'd be town hall events. It wasn't like this a year out from 2014. So the question is, how confident is the Scottish government and maybe their actions or lack thereof are speaking louder than their words. It's interesting that, that point Kim was making, Katrina. I was looking uh, back, you know, a year out from, uh, well, sort of 18 months out from the 2014, uh, in fact, almost more than two years. So the referendum that happened in 2014, the Better Together pro-union campaign and the Yes Scotland campaign were both set up in the spring of 2012. So more than two years before. We're just not in the same place, are we? It feels like... 
were in the next few weeks the Supreme Court to, to give the go-ahead to an independence referendum, from a standing start to a vote in October no, uh, next year seems an extraordinary timescale to try and fit everything in. Yes, I mean, it would be an astonishing piece of work to achieve it, but the SNP has repeated the same consistent and very clear message at the last five Scottish and UK elections that a vote for them is a vote for NDF too. So Nicola Sturgeon has to deliver on this, or at least be seen to take every step possible to deliver on this in order to get out of this spiral that the, the party's stuck in before patients from you know, the, the loyal fan base is lost. But we don't know what the specific wording of the question would be, so that has to be set. Campaigns have to be set in motion. It would involve some very rapid cohesion from the more left-wing elements of the Scottish Greens, the radical independence movement, and the SNP all coming together. I think that would happen fairly naturally given the massive stakes at play, but I think it's also really interesting to look at what the no side might do because of course in 2014 there was cooperation from Labour and the Conservatives under the Better Together campaign. Labour has lost a lot of its grassroots manpower. The Tories have been largely decimated in Scotland. Will they join forces this time around? You can't quite see how they would avoid it but with the Conservatives being so so toxic it puts Labour in a really tricky position. So the thought that we might have another referendum on October the 19th of next year just seems like a, an overwhelming proposition. Well, let's uh, let's see what the, the public uh, think about all of this. Do the public actually want another referendum? Were there to be one, uh, what would be the likely outcome? It's the sort of tectonic plates of politics shift. Uh, well, Sir John Curtis is a professor of politics at the University of Strathclyde. He's also a senior research fellow at the National Centre for Social Research. An all-round polling legend. I spoke to him a little earlier about whether or not the public want independence? The truth is that Scotland remains divided down the middle uh, on support for independence. A couple of the polls that were done in anticipation of this weekend's SNP conference both put support for yes at 49%, no 51%. That's pretty much been the position now on average in the polls for the last 18 months or so. It does mean that certainly holding a referendum next year looks like a decidedly risky project for Nicola Sturgeon. There is by no means any guarantee of success, but it also looks equally risky for those on the unionist side because they could not be sure of winning a second referendum next year either. The SNP quite often point out uh, that they were a long way behind in 2014 and during the course of the campaign, they 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 really narrowed that gap. Ultimately, they lost 55-45, uh, but the, they did manage to pull off quite a, uh, quite a trick in terms of winning over support. And they think that during a campaign, they could repeat that trick. Is that a reasonable claim to make? Well, the, the, the historical claim is accurate. There is no doubt that while the unionists might have won the eventual ballot, there's little doubt that it was the yes side that won the campaign with a significant increase in support for independence, an increase that has never disappeared. One of the reasons why Scotland is now as evenly divided on the constitutional question is in part, at least, a legacy of the ballot in 2014. But I think what one needs to appreciate, Matt, is that um, we are now looking at a very different constitutional choice if we were to have a referendum next year. Back in 2014, 
The argument was simply about whether or not Scotland should be inside or outside the United Kingdom, with at least, according to the SNP at least, the question of Scotland's membership of the European Union not necessarily being at stake. Now, the choice is going to be between inside the UK but outside the European Union versus a being outside the UK but inside the European Union. That is, I think, a much bigger choice. It's a different choice. It raises somewhat uh, different questions, including not least what happens to the border between Gretna and Berwick. And I think two things that need to be appreciated. One is that one major change since 2014 is that at that point in time, people's attitudes towards the European Union did not influence their attitudes uh, towards whether or not Scotland should become an independent country. Since Brexit, that's no longer the case. The attitudes towards the two are now quite strongly related. And something like 80% of those people who support independence are people who support being inside uh, the European Union. The second thing is that we've not really as yet in Scotland had a debate about this rather different, rather bigger choice. And I don't think anybody can be sure as to which side would have the better of the argument. I think the point is that both sides will need to refashion their arguments. And in a sense, perhaps what might prove to be the most important event of this week is not Nicola Sturgeon's speech today. It's not necessarily the Supreme Court uh, um, case that will be heard on Tuesday and Wednesday, but rather the publication of the SNP's case, the economic case for independence, uh, in the circumstances which Scotland now finds itself. That is the argument that the SNP will have to win. They will have to persuade, in effect, Scotland, that its future is better off as being part of the European Union than it is as being part of the United Kingdom. And who will win that debate? I don't think either side can be sure. And just finally, John, the role of the Labour Party in all this, the, the, clearly the SNP have sought to capitalise uh, having a Conservative government that Scotland didn't vote for in Westminster ruling over, over Scotland. What difference does a resurgent Labour Party have uh, with nationwide? Keir Starmer is, is well, 30 points ahead still in, in some polls. Um, what does that have in terms of both seats, potentially seats gained in a general election, but also in shifting that debate that the argument, the only way we can get rid of the Tories ruling over us as independents doesn't hold anymore. So I just wonder what, what, what view you had of, of the role of the Labour Party in shifting this debate. Yeah, I mean, it, it's an important question. The answer is perhaps a, more, a little more complicated than people sometimes uh, appreciate. So coming to your first point. What difference might it make to seats? Well, we've seen the rise, Labour's vote rise in Scotland in all four of the polls that have been done uh, in the last few days. Not quite on the scale that there is south of the border, but uh, the Labour Party is now running at 30, 30, 31% in the polls. That's 12 points up on where the party was in Scotland back in 2019. And as a result of that, support for the SNP hasn't changed. It's still running at 45%, which is where it was in 2019. But with Labour up, inevitably, the SNP would be at risk of losing some seats to Labour. Um, certainly, a half a dozen seats could be lost. But equally, uh, given the collapse in Conservative support down to no more than 14%, all six of the seats that the Conservatives currently hold could go to the SNP. Net effect on the SNP, zero. In other words, the rise of Labour so far in Scotland doesn't look as though it would affect the overall tally of SNP seats. 
So far, at least, and I emphasize so far, at least, the latest polls do not indicate any decline in support for the SNP or in support for independence in the immediate wake of Labour's revival across the UK. Although, of course, it might be argued that it is early days. And certainly of the three principal unionist parties in Scotland, it is Labour that have some success at winning over the support of those who back independence at the moment, about 16% of yes supporters are saying that they would vote for the Labour Party. So certainly Labour Party posed potentially more of a threat to the SNP than certainly the Conservatives ever did. But all of that said, probably in the end, the crucial bit about what's happened in the last fortnight is that we're now looking at the prospect, at least, the possibility, at least, of the Labour Party winning an overall majority at the next Westminster election. I think, in truth, in the end, the SNP's best chance of being able to find a pathway to a referendum has always looked to be that we end up with a sequence of hung parliaments at Westminster in the wake of which the SNP are able to use their bargaining power as a hinge party to be able to foist a, a UK referendum out of, the, out of a UK government. If the Labour Party can win an overall majority in the next election, the SNP's pathway to being able to force a referendum will find itself blocked. That was Professor Sir John Curtis talking us through the polling. We had that extraordinary poll in the Times last week, which showed that Keir Starmer was now more popular than Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland and Labour uh, gaining uh, significantly right across the country, but uh, north of the border too. No wonder Keir Starmer felt confident enough in his party conference speech uh, to be pretty um, emphatic about where he saw Labour's relationship with the SNP. We can't work with them. We won't work with them. No deal under any circumstances. Uh, let's bring in uh, Katrina and Kieran again. Uh, Katrina, the rise of... I mean, there's times when there were lots of... Uh, potential pitfalls along the way for uh, Nicola Sturgeon's hopes of independence. How serious do you think the threat posed by a resurgent, credible, plausible Labour government in Westminster is? I mean, it, it certainly changes the landscape and changes one of the SNP's linchpin arguments, which is that we keep getting Tory governments in Scotland that we haven't voted for. I think it's it's a real positive for Scotland that the Labour Party is seeing a resurgence because it's vital that we have credible opposition in Scotland. But, I mean, it, it's very much a honeymoon period for Labour. It's very, very early days. So, uh, you know, and we see how quickly things change in politics and how hard it is to sort of pin your colours to the mask because you don't know what's coming around the corner. So... Um, I, I think it, it makes things more interesting. It certainly makes things a bit spicier for Nicola Sturgeon, but whether it's the massive threat that it's being presented as, I'm not really convinced. Uh, Kieran, you had an interesting story in uh, in the Times today about the the the, the pra some of the practicalities. It all, it all reminded me a bit of 20, uh, 2014, to be honest, when we start getting into the practicalities of uh, what happens at the border. Uh, if uh, an independent Scotland, uh, if Scotland does go independent, then there's a border between Scotland and England. Um, and the threat of long traffic queues. This is a sort of real world impact, isn't it? Yeah, and the border was brought up as an issue in 2014. There's a lot of what were, you know, could be fairly described as, as scare stories from the Better Together campaign about the border um, between Scotland and England um, if Scotland was to become independent, which was never really an issue in 2014 because an independent Scotland would be looking to join the European Union. So, you know, everything could just 
flow as per. The difference now is with the UK having voted to leave the EU, if an independent Scotland was to join the European Union, there would have to be a land border because it would be a land border with, with the European Union. Now, it's important to stress that these queues and tailbacks are not going to be folk driving in their cars down south getting passport checks. The common travel area would almost certainly exist, but it's about regulatory checks of goods, the kind of issues that we're seeing um, in Northern Ireland just now because of Brexit. And all of those issues would apply to an independent Scotland. And, you know, we've seen, you know, better than probably Katrina or I, Matt, about the, the issues about the negotiation of the Brexit deal and how you disentangle all of that. And all of that would then apply to an independent Scotland seeking to join the European Union as well. Um, either of you, final question on this. Um, what impact do you think the the best one in the world, kerfuffle we've had over the last six years for trying to negotiate Britain's withdrawal from the EU. Has that had any impact, do you think, on public opinion of just, even if you could throw a switch and make these things happen? Actually, actually it's just incredibly complicated and it diverts bandwidth, time, whatever you want to call it, away from tackling real life issues. That actually the... It's a, it will be a, a, a nightmare trying to remove uh, Scotland from the UK. It, seems, it strikes me as quite a powerful argument. Is that something that you can see, see working up there? I don't know, Katrina. Yeah, I mean, we talk a lot about Brexit being the catalyst for people to switch their allegiance from, uh, from no to yes. But we don't really mention often that actually the chaos of Brexit has conversely made some people more keen to stick with, with better the devil they know. Um, I do think it's sort of problematic to suggest that we can't cope with our day-to-day -day politics as well as dealing with the constitutional question. You know, obviously it puts extra burden on the civil service, but I, I do think that we should be able to, to juggle several issues at once. But yeah, the, um, the Brexit issue I don't think is quite as clear-cut as people make it out to be with regards to influencing how people are, are going to use their independence vote. Uh, what do you think, Kevin? What, what do you think would be the deciding factors? Well, Brexit was absolutely a, a big recruiting sergeant. John Curtis talked about that um, in his polling, that, you know, that we have seen people who voted Remain, who backed Union last time, be more attracted to the prospect of independence. But as Katrina was alluding to there, what we've also seen from uh, unionist politicians and campaigners is a real push towards that Scottish independence would be Brexit on stilts or Brexit, but more difficult, you know, if it's if it's that tough to for the UK to leave the European Union after 40 odd years, imagine disentangling a 300 year old union. And that will be a, a major argument from, you know, from from people on the pro-union side, particularly um, in the Labour Party and those kind of pro-union remainers. And yeah, it, it will be interesting to see. I, I wouldn't like to make a prediction on, on how successful or otherwise uh, that will be. An independence referendum should happen in the next 12 months if Nicola Sturgeon gets her way. How realistic is that? Let's speak to Stephen Flynn, SNP MP for Aberdeen at South. Hi, Stephen. Good morning, Matt. How are you doing? I'm not bad at all. How's your party conference going? Is it is uh, a bit muted, uh, was how Kieran Andrews uh, suggested it. Not, not a huge amount of confidence that that referendum is going to happen next year? I think I actually need to go and find Kieran and, uh, and cheer him up a little bit because the the, the conference I'm seeing is one where uh, folk are engaged and, and, and positive about Scotland's future. You know, we've spent the best part of the last uh, couple of days talking about energy because it's obviously an incredibly important
important topic at this moment in time for households and businesses across the UK. And we've been extolling the potential of Scotland's uh, renewable opportunities. And, you know, that's really driven home the, the need and the desire for, for Scottish independence. And of course, we're all waiting to see what the outcome of the Supreme Court is, is going to be. But in the grand scheme of things, I think we're all really confident uh, that they'll come forward. I'm not going to prejudge uh, what the outcome is going to be, but I'm confident that the arguments that, that have been put forward will allow us to to have that independence referendum next year. And I'm just looking forward to to getting back on that campaign trail properly. Because, uh, of course, the SNP has been campaigning for independence for 90 years. We don't necessarily need a, a date to, to do that, but I'm looking forward to getting firmly on that campaign trail and, and bringing, bringing a victory home. I was going to ask you that. Are you really ready to fight a referendum in 12 months' time? Because I was looking back, you know, two and a half years before the referendum in 2014, we had two fully blow, full-blown campaigns, Better Together and Yes to Independence, were up and running. By this time, a year out from the vote last year, we were having quite detailed arguments about how big an independent Scotland's military budget was going to be, uh, conversations about whether or not I was going to use the pound. The people of Scotland aren't ready, are they, to have that, have that vote within 12 months? Are you ready? Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're always ready for these things. And I think that's doing a little bit of a disservice to the, the people of Scotland because, you know, over the course of the last, what, eight years since the, the previous uh, referendum, the people of Scotland have been fully engaged in the in the debate and around the constitutional future. You mean, I mean, like, every single election that we fought uh, has been predicated on pushing for that uh, opportunity for the people of Scotland to vote again and the electorate have engaged with that fully and have, and have supported us and we've won every single election since since the referendum, of course. So, yeah, no, we're, we're ready to go uh, when, when the opportunity arises. Like I say, we've been campaigning for independence for the best part of, of 90 years, and now's the time to, to go and deliver. Um, the truth is that uh, a resurgent Labour Party doing better right across uh, the UK, but in Scotland too, that's bad news for you and the prospect of independence, isn't it? I don't, I don't think that marries uh, with reality, if I'm honest. Um, I, I want to make clear, though, I do, I do think that a Labour government would be more beneficial than a, a Tory government as a very low bar, though. But there's, there's got to be a sense of reality about what a Labour government actually means when it comes to the economy. The, Keir Starmer's been clear that he's a, a fully engaged with Brexit when it comes to immigration. Rachel Reeves told us that her... Only issue with the UK's immigration policy at this moment in time is the fact that they're not deporting asylum seekers quickly enough. When it comes to defence, the Labour Party still want nuclear weapons. And when it comes to energy, of course, they want nuclear energy, which we don't need in Scotland. So the Labour Party is, uh, whilst they're having a, a bit of a bounce in England, it's not cutting through uh, in Scotland. And, and John Curtis has, has outlined how, how that is the case. And, of course, when, it look, when we look at the polls in terms of who's going to win the most seats, it's the SNP by an absolute landslide. And I'm confident that with the, the arguments that we have put forward in the past and that we'll continue to put forward into the future, the, the people of Scotland will continue to put their faith in us. I just want to play you a little clip of what uh, Nicola Sturgeon said to the BBC yesterday. I, I detest the Tories and everything they stand for, so it's not difficult to answer that question. Do you detest the Tories, Stephen? I, I think I look at it a little bit differently, Matt. I, I don't detest them. I, I pity the Tories. I mean, imagine imagine having the, the moral compass that in a time of national crisis, you, your reaction to that is to do tax cuts to the richest in society and to lift the cap on bankers' bonuses, to attack the public sector and to seek to impact upon those uh, more cuts who, who are receiving universal universal credit. So I, I pity folk who have that, that moral compass instead of seeking to support people and to make society better. 
Um, so was Nicola Sturgeon wrong to say that she detests what more than half a million people in Scotland who voted for the Conservatives? No, she, she wasn't saying that she detests people who vote for the Tories. She was saying that she detests their policies. Um, and that's uh, a very... No, she didn't. Uh, she said, I detest the Tories. She didn't say policies. She said, I detest nah, the Tories. I, yeah, come on, Matt. I think we all know that she was referring to Tory policies. She Tory wasn't. Policies. Let's say, well, listen to it again. Listen to it again. I, I detest the Tories and everything they stand for. So it's not difficult to answer that question. Yeah, so she didn't say, I detest the Tory policies. I detest the Tories and everything they stand um, for, is what she said. And everything uh, they stand for is the important uh, aspect of that. Of it sounds to me, Stephen, like you think this was a bit of a mistake, that she's overreached a bit and actually she's just been incredibly rude about half a million voters in Scotland. No, not at all, Matt. I don't think she's overreached at all. I think she said what she, she believes and, and she's perfectly entitled to, to do that. But let me be clear, and I think the First Minister has been clear on this as well in, in uh, her remarks since, that she was referring to Tory policies, Tory policies that have devastated the economy of Scotland for, for generations. And we still see the impact of, of Thatcherism. And of course, we're seeing the impact of trust and quartangonomics uh, at this moment in time. And I guess when we when we go to the, the polls, that will be the people of Scotland to decide whether they, they like the Tories or not. And they haven't liked the Tories in Scotland since 1955. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.